Mike. Lauren. Mike, have you ever vaped? I feel like I should know this about you, but I don't. <laughs> I used to vape all the time. Back when it was all the rage about, I don't know, five, six years ago. Yeah. Oh, so I just missed your vaping stage because I joined Wired about four years ago. Yeah, I think so. What would you do if the world ran out of vape juice? Uh, I would probably just smoke a cigarette. Oh, really? All right. <laughs> we, we have to talk about this. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you. We really missed you. I missed you too. And by we, I'm speaking for our audience too, because <laughs> I'm assuming they missed you. I, I missed you and our audience as well. Well, this week, we're also joined by someone else who I'm sure misses you, Wired senior writer Ariel Pardez, our former Gadget Lab co-host and still a friend of the pod. Hey, Ariel. Hi, it's so good to be with you guys again. It's great to have you back. Okay, so today we're talking about vaping, its origins, why it caught on so fast, and what the future of vaping might be now that regulators are cracking down on it. So for those not totally hooked, vapes are those electric nicotine sticks that your high schooler might hide up their sleeve. This market of e-cigarettes has taken off over the past few years. It's now a multi-billion dollar industry. And at the front of all of it has been Juul. That's J-U-U-L. Back in 2018, Juul Labs, which is the company that makes the Juul vape, was valued at $38 billion, but that wouldn't last very long. Last month, the FDA moved to effectively ban Juul products from being sold in the United States. Now, Juul objected and a judge stayed the order, but Juul's fate still kind of hangs in a limbo of legal battles. Ariel, you wrote a story about all of this for Wire.com. Before we get into the FDA's crackdown on nicotine products, tell us a little bit about Juul's backstory. Like, when did it launch and why has this particular vape appealed to so many people? Sure. So... The Juul story really begins in 2014, which is the year that the product was introduced. Juul's co-founders had been kind of iterating on an e-cigarette for about 10 years prior to that. They both met at Stanford, where they were in the Masters of Design program. And as one does, goes yeah. to Stanford, majors in design, makes a cigarette product. Right. Well, well both co-founders were smokers themselves and wanted to stop smoking because it's horrible for your health. Cigarettes are the leading cause of preventable death in the United States, and it's really hard to quit. So the co-founders, you know, had this idea to make a product that was satisfying enough for someone who was a smoker, looked cool enough, felt cool enough, gave you the same kind of nicotine head rush, um, but it effectively eliminated your cancer risk. And so they started with a product called the Plume. They later made a THC product called the Pax. And then in 2014, they came out with the Jewel, which really changed the game for e-cigarettes in two sort of important ways. Um, the first was that it had this amazing design. It was like small and kind of tech-like. It, it was about the size of a flash drive. It was matte black. It had no buttons, just this LED light that would sort of 
light up when you inhaled, very elegant and, and cool and iPhone-y. And the second key feature of the Juul was that it had a higher nicotine content than most other e-cigarettes on the market. So um, rather than getting something that had about 1% nicotine by volume, which was pretty standard in the industry, you were getting about 5% by volume. Um, and this is a really key product development of the Juul. It, it sort of uh, the company found a way to create something called nicotine salts, which allowed them to put more nicotine in the device. Um, and that made it a lot more satisfying for people who are trying to quit smoking. It obviously made it a lot more addictive for people <laughs> who were not smokers. But uh, that's kind of where where the story begins in, in 2014. And so by design, Juul morphed from something that people might use to try to quit smoking to something that just all the cool kids were doing. Um, you mentioned in your story that it really attracted the you know Snapchatting, hoverboarding crowd, which I take to mean young people. <laughs> how much of this, people younger than us, how much of this was part of some um, concerted effort on Jules' part? Yeah, so this is kind of one of the, the the great questions of the Jewel stories. How intentionally did they court young people? You know, it's it's hard to to parse the answer. If you if you talk to the Jewel founders, their answer has been for many many years that they are making a product for adult smokers who want to switch from cigarettes to something healthier. However, from the get go, Jewel's marketing was featured on platforms like Instagram and in youth magazines like Seventeen Magazine and Vice and on places like Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network, which are not generally where you find an audience of adult smokers. The, the average smoker in the United States is between the ages of 35 and 60. So, you know, Nickelodeon is not really an ideal place to reach them. And the marketing materials also featured people who looked really cool. I mean, uh, one of the early ad campaigns for Juul was called Vaporized, and it showed these sort of like young, cool people blowing uh, you know, vapor rings and standing in front of colorful backgrounds and looking chic. And, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of product placement in like cool New York parties. So, you know, from the very beginning, this was marketed not like a product that was a smoking cessation device, which lots of previous e-cigarette companies had sort of stayed in that lane. It was marketed like a product that, you know, was like the new iPhone or the new hoverboard or the new Snapchat, right? Something that makes you look cool and that kind of ingroups you with the people in your generation. I guess the last thing I'll say is that, you know, Juul also became very popular because it tastes good. I don't know if you guys have any feelings about cigarettes, but I personally think that one of the main reasons not to smoke cigarettes is that you smell bad and it tastes bad in your mouth. And like, there's kind of like an ick factor to like getting into tobacco. Whereas Juul um, from the get-go tasted like a sort of fruit smoothie or a creme brulee. And <laughs> that is something that tobacco products are not allowed to do. Like a, a, a cigarette cannot make, uh, you know, flavors that are appealing to young people. They can only sell flavors that are gross and taste like tobacco. But Juul, uh, you know, was able to to get a lot of people interested in the product because it, it tasted good and it looked cool. Yeah, the, the flavoring is really interesting to me because it's the differentiating factor that makes Juul more appealing, but it's also the thing that made it more visible to regulators. Uh, so the device, it's actually, it's two pieces, right? It's, it's a rechargeable stick with the battery in it and the little motor in it. Mm -hmm. And then there's a pod that slides in and you mm -hmm. buy the pods and you inter you interchange them whenever you run out or want a different flavor. 
And the pods come in different flavors. And the ones that really drew the ire of the FDA and the other regulatory bodies around the country were the ones that were the fruity flavors, right? The the fruity and like candy style flavors. Yeah. Mango was a very popular one among the youth. <laughs> so because the fruity candy flavors were the things that were going to draw regulatory attention to them, uh, Jewel had to change his business. Um, how did Jewel's relationship with regulatory bodies sort of evolve? You know, it's very interesting. When Juul came onto the market, the FDA did not actually regulate e-cigarettes. And this is kind of like long and boring and complicated. But to, to make that very long story short, due to the way that tobacco regulations were written, the FDA didn't have jurisdiction over products that contained nicotine but not tobacco. So it took a while for the FDA to actually gain the authority to do anything about e-cigarettes. But then even once they did gain the authority, they took a pretty lax approach to regulating uh, the industry. And people who have been critical of companies like Juul find this to be the most important part of the story, which is that the FDA had the power to crack down on these companies, to regulate them, to review applications about what kind of products they were selling to young people and how they were advertising them. And they didn't. And as a result of that, these companies got really, really big. So, you know, Juul launched in 2014. By 2018, this was a company that had completely redefined the category. You know, jeweling and vaping had become synonymous. It was like the Kleenex of e-cigarettes. It was worth $38 billion. You know, for, for comparison, that's more than like Lyft was, it was all, that's about twice as much as Lyft was worth in 2018. So we're talking about like tremendous, tremendous growth. But by 2018, regulators had kind of realized they had to do something because not only was this product very popular, but there were some indications that it had become very popular with people under the age of 18, that there was kind of like a whole group of young people becoming addicted to nicotine. And this was causing a crisis that perhaps outweighed the benefits to adult smokers who wanted to quit cigarettes. And so at the same time that Juul is getting really, really big, it's also anticipating that there could be a regulatory crackdown and it needs to kind of like get its shit together, stop acting like one of these move fast and break things startups and start acting like a company that's regulated by the FDA. So they did something pretty radical, which is they actually pulled their most popular flavors from the shelves. And that included all of their sweet and fruity flavors like mango, which contributed to most of the company's revenue with the intent of kind of currying favor with the FDA, saying like, we can play by your rules. We are a product for adult smokers. We are not trying to entice children to use nicotine products. And... I think at the time, a lot of people were optimistic that this was like a shift in the industry, that um, everyone had kind of gotten a little more serious about the youth nicotine problem, that the FDA was going to make some moves and that Juul was going to be cooperative. Um, and of course, as we know now, a couple of years later, that wasn't really enough. And it hasn't really done much to to solve any of the problems that that people are concerned about. Ariel, thanks for um, lighting up the first segment uh, about Jewel for us. <laughs> Sorry, that was a terrible pun. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do some more sick vape tricks. So Jewel's future may be a little bit up in the air, but even if the company goes up in smoke, it's not likely to be the end of the entire e-cigarette market. 
Ariel, what happened next for Jewel and what were the implications of that? Okay, so as I said, in 2018, they pulled their most popular flavors from the shelf in an effort Mm -hmm. to, you know, appease the FDA. But a very interesting thing happens when you have built a market of people who want your products and then you take your products away. Obviously, what happens is that another company steps in to fill the market. So Juul had basically established, you know, millions of customers who liked smoking vapor flavored like mango. And if they weren't going to sell it, then somebody else would. And so what basically happened is that an entire industry of copycats uh, moved in to take hold of that market. So I talked to some some people who were in college in 2018 about their relationship to nicotine products. And they basically told me that, you know, when Juul stopped selling its popular flavors, nobody wanted to smoke the tobacco one, which is exactly the point, right? Like to stop appealing to kids. But pretty soon these other brands moved in. Um, they're called Elf Bar and Fume and Puff Bar. And they come in these sort of like whimsical colors and beautifully designed packages. And they still sell all of the flavors that Juul used to and more. You can get them in pineapple flavor that tastes like a pina colada. And so kids kind of moved over to those products. And a really interesting thing has happened with these these new companies, which is that a lot of attention has been paid to Juul, which is the most well-known brand in e-cigarettes. But while Juul has kind of been chipped away little by little from various regulatory agencies and also a bunch of different lawsuits from industry groups and state attorneys general who have blamed the company for creating this youth nicotine epidemic, um, not as much attention has been paid to these other companies that have moved in. And so they've managed to escape a lot of regulatory loopholes that have affected Juul and other big companies, but sort of haven't affected these smaller companies. So there's this interesting sort of whack-a-mole situation happening where, you know, regulatory agencies like the FDA are trying to deal with companies on an individual basis um, and sort of every move they make just gives rise to another company to, to sort of meet the market demand that isn't going away. Right. And in your story, you spoke to a source, an anti-tobacco industry activist who pointed out that when regulatory loopholes appear, they basically just paint the roadmap for the industry by pointing clearly to the places it should move next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one one great example of that is um, the Trump administration made this very dramatic move to ban flavored e-cigarette products. And this was specifically to try to curb the, the market of young people from getting products that are tasty and contain just an insane amount of nicotine. But the ban was written in such a way that it left a loophole for products that, unlike Juul, come with the pods built in, they come pre-charged, and then you throw them away once you're you're finished with the uh, you know delicious flavored nicotine liquid and so that's allowed these brands like elf bar and puff bar to stay on the market um, even while jewel you know has been like slowly chipped away by regulators and you know in your story that these other products are now the most popular vaping devices among teens yeah. which has bummed out some public health advocates understandably so is this just a game of whack-a-mole like vapors are gonna vape Yeah, I do think that's one of the big concerns. I mean, I I spoke to a number of anti-vaping groups in the course of my reporting and and some pro-vaping groups. um, And everyone has a different expectation about how this year is going to go. I think some people are pretty optimistic that this is the year the FDA really takes strong action and that although it will take time for the FDA to individually 
review applications from every vaping company out there and, and make decisions about which ones are authorized and which ones are not. Um, some are optimistic that this is the year the vaping industry goes kaput. Other people, I think, are looking back on the last decade of, of FDA regulation and are saying they're skeptical that the impact will be big enough to wipe out the industry altogether. And I think if, you know, tech history tells us anything, it's that if there's a market, there are companies that are going to serve it one way or another. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I also wonder what this means in the broader demand for harm reduction, you know, in, in the sense that some people move on from harder drugs or addictions to other uh, vices and end up vaping or smoking because it's something that ultimately is less harmful, at least in the short term. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of vaping advocates are worried that, um, y- you know, the, the sort of crisis of Juul has largely been a PR crisis and not a health crisis. I talked to one public health researcher who said, you know, if you look at the, the harms of smoking, they're very severe. But if you look at the harms of nicotine, it's still not entirely clear what they are. Like, there's some indication that high nicotine use can have a negative effect on heart health. But those uh, correlations aren't really well established. And we don't have decades of research on what happens to young people who become addicted to, to nicotine in their teens, right? So there is kind of a question mark about like, what is actually the greater risk? Is it that we have a lot of young people who are now nicotine addicts and may potentially become smokers in the future? Or is it a greater risk that people who have smoked in the past will now continue to smoke because they don't have access to to vaping products that are, you know, satisfying to use. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of interesting arguments. And, and unfortunately, you know, I don't think there's a, a straightforward path for a regulator like the FDA to take that, that appeases everyone or sort of neatly solves any of these problems. Yeah, you can't eradicate vice with legislation. <laughs> yeah. Ariel, thanks so much for this. Uh, we're going to take another quick break and then we'll come back and do our recommendations. Ariel Pardez, as our guest of honor, what is your recommendation this week? My recommendation is for Nixta. It is a liqueur made of corn. And I have to say it is the drink of the summer. Nice. You had it here. (laughs) (laughs) I recently uh, uh, had a cocktail made with um, this just enticing corn elixir and it was unlike anything I've ever had before. Apparently uh, Nixta has not been available in the United States until this year. It's an export from Mexico and so if you get on it now you will be officially a trendsetter uh, ahead of the curve and um, it's just delicious. It's it's great in a cocktail. It's great on its own. It tastes like kind of like the best tortilla you've ever had but in like sweet alcohol form. Just try it. Just try it. <laughs> Does it pair nicely with uh, mango vape juice? <laughs> I have not tried that pairing, but I am confident it would be delicious. It sounds like something that would be good with like a huge bowl of guacamole. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, so keeping with the theme, um, I'm going to recommend a book that deals with dependency, among other things. It's called The Copenhagen Trilogy. And it's by a woman named Tova Ditlevsen, who is a very famous, renowned poet, 
from Copenhagen, Denmark. She's a Danish poet. Uh, she she lived through most of the 20th century. This is a memoir that she wrote when she was in her, I would say, mid-40s. She wrote it in the 60s and 70s, and it is about her youth, her childhood, her youth, and her early adulthood. It deals with, you know, from her earliest memories up until she's sort of in her mid to late 20s. It covers her first three husbands. <laughs> but uh, it Wait, is, three of how many? <laughs> I think she had four in her life. I think she had four. Right on. Uh, wow, but anyway, I the, thought planning one wedding was hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, the memoir is is one of the best memoirs that I have ever read. It's really amazing. Uh, just because she is such a economical and unique writer, she has this very huh. clear, very crisp voice that is a pleasure to read, and it is like propulsive like you start mm. and it's so fast and so economical that you just keep going uh i read the book in a matter of days which is rare for me if you if you know me you know i'm a very slow reader but um the the big theme in in the book is uh dependency thanks in no small part to her second husband who is a doctor she became addicted to demerol and the passages in the second half of the book that talk about her Demerol addiction and the dependency and the withdrawal and the cravings and how she incorporated those things into her life after she was able to get off of Demerol is really like that's the best part of the book. And it's really fascinating and it's harrowing, uh, very difficult to read, but also one of the best things about addiction and dependency and codependency that I've ever read. So that's my recommendation. Uh, the Copenhagen Trilogy has been around for a while, but it was recently, I want to say two years ago, released in a new translation that puts all of her memoirs together into one volume. And uh, you can find it where you find all of Tove Ditlevsen's books. <laughs> Is this the book of the summer? Uh, it's it's pretty grim, and it was probably the book of two winters ago. I was just slow mm. to get to it, but I read it uh, recently on my vacation, and uh, I was I was going to recommend it at the first chance I got. It just so happens that we're talking about dependency on chemicals today, so today sort of made sense. And you read the entire trilogy? Yeah, it's it's just Thank like you. it's as long as a regular book. It's not three books. It's it's one volume. Well, one book with three volumes inside of it. But yeah, you can read the whole thing pretty quick. Lauren, what is your recommendation? Do you want to hear something funny, Mike? I would love to hear something funny. I had, it's probably funny to nobody except for me, but I had a feeling this was going to be a recommendation this week because I saw you check it off as read on Goodreads. <laughs> wow. I got a notification about it. Yeah. Oh, Mike yes. is my only friend on Goodreads. And so when he finishes a book, it's, that's the only notification that I get. And I just got one this morning. I feel so honored wow. Yes. to be your only friend on Goodreads. Also, you're probably the only person until right now who knows that I'm also reading Outlander, the romance <laughs> novel. <laughs> I, I could probably open the app right now and tell everyone the, all the books you're reading, but we'll save that for a future episode. It's real. I just needed something to balance out all of the, the heavy Danish drama. So I went for some <laughs> bodice ripping <laughs> romance. <laughs> Anyway, Lauren, what is your recommendation? Right. My actual recommendation this week, aside from stalking Mike on Goodreads, is a show called The Bear on Hulu. 
I first heard about this because I read this fantastic GQ profile of the star actor of the show. GQ, I should note, is also owned by Condé Nast, our parent company. So they're a sibling magazine to Wired. But I was so intrigued by this profile that I decided to start The Bear this week. And I am uh, I'm fascinated by it already. I'm only three episodes in. Typically, I don't like to recommend something unless I finished it but I have a feeling I'm going to finish this series. And it's about a young chef, a rising star, who's working at some of the most elite restaurants in the world, who gets compelled to return to his hometown of Chicago and take over his brother's, uh, it's a deli slash sandwich shop um, after his brother's suicide, which you find out pretty early on in the series. So I'm not spoiling anything. Um, so it's a, a very different environment that he's working in. And um, he's obviously going through some internal grief processes while he's trying to keep this business alive. And there's great acting and great dialogue in the show. And it really, I think, captures some of the stressors of working in you know, the restaurant industry. And um, yeah, it's just, it's great so far. So I recommend checking out The Bear if you're looking for something new to watch. That's on Hulu. Also, I have to recommend Real Bears because <laughs> oh, I was in um, I was in Lake Tahoe uh, last week, last week into this week, and I happened to step out, and I'm so bummed about this. I happened to go out for a hike, but the folks who were staying back at the house where I was staying, they had like this really amazing close encounter with bear cubs. And they were the cutest things ever. I must have watched this video clip like 50 times. And I can't believe that I wasn't there for it. They were just kind of scaling <laughs> up this tree that was directly, directly next to the patio. And uh, Mama Bear was not too far away. And it was just really incredible to see. So, um, yeah, I, I told a friend about this. I said, I saw this really this video of these cool bears that were like right outside of our house. And he was like, you've seen bears before, right? And I was like, I maybe i guess maybe i've seen bears i don't know it's like not like a common i mean we do live in northern california so it's not uncommon but like also like i lived in new york city for a long time and it's not like i saw bears there like we don't see bears in san francisco yeah did you ever do go we? to a cubs game <laughs> yeah i have been to a cubs game so there you um, go <laughs> i guess i have anyway bears are incredible I feel like this is going to be one of those timestamps. Like someone's going to come out when I'm eaten by a bear seven years from now. And someone's going to be like, she was on that show a long time ago talking about how much she loves bears. She poked the bear. <laughs> Should you be so lucky to go in such a way? Yes. Right. With such notoriety. I'm okay. going to vape myself to death. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> All right. That's our show. Thanks for letting me ramble about bears. Thank you, Ariel, for joining us. It's been really wonderful having you back. My pleasure. And welcome back, Mike. It's great to have you back. Thanks. It's very good to be back. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. We'll include our Twitter handles. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth. We'll be back next week. Bye for now. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.